Are you ready to dive into the Word this morning? Good. I'm glad that you are. Because today we're going to start talking about something that can be very difficult to talk about. I seem, that seems to be a reoccurring theme for me lately. We're talking about challenging things, but I think it's very, very important. We live in, in an unsettled time right now. People are very wound up and fearful, and they're questioning things. And what about life? And what about the future? And what about the world? And, and uh, so I haven't talked about this really much at all in the 10 years that I've been leading the church, but I really feel like it's an important time to discuss it. Um, we really value development here. There are five values that I talk about uh, for us as a church that we value. We, we value um, authenticity, generosity, commitment, development, and family. Those are five of the guiding values that we look at a lot. And the one I want to talk about for just a moment is development. It's so important that you and I are growing in our relationship with God, growing in our understanding of the truth of His Word, growing in our relationships with one another, developing that relationships, so that we have a firm foundation, a strength about us as we go about life. We need to be developing all the time, continual growth. It's very important. And we are the light of the world. Matthew chapter 15, uh, 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. So we, we have this, we carry with us this mission of being important in the world. We carry something, a light, a good news, a gospel. And we have to understand what that good news is. Because there's lots of bad news in the world. There's lots of stuff that's stirring up anxiety and fear and anger and frustration and brokenness and discontent and dysfunctional relationships. We've just been talking about relationships. What does the Bible teach us about relationships? How do we navigate our relationships better? And we talked about, you know, that maybe being right isn't the most important thing all the time. You know, it's, it's not always the priority to be right Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. God has painted this picture that you and I are, are to walk through life this way as a light, as a, as a positive, as a good source in the world. Let your reasonableness, that's also translated gentleness. We talked about the meaning of this word a few weeks ago, reasonableness. It's, it's this idea of of even beyond justice, it's like a justice and a grace almost that work together. And sometimes those can be messy. That's who we are in the world. So we have to be developing our understanding of the truth and our knowledge of God and His Word. Whoops. Sorry, Nick. Because it's so important how we walk through this life and what we show or shine to the world. Is it light? James chapter 5, verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. It takes a development process. It takes walking in a relationship with God, studying and learning His Word to get truths established in our hearts so that as we walk through life, we know how to do it well because the world is not doing it well. It's broken. Sin is broken creation. But we have good news, and we have answers in the Scripture. We have direction. We have good things. And so it's so important to us that we are developing. And one of the reasons we, we want to develop, and one of the things that has created a lot of chaos in recent days, and this, this comes and goes, but you know, we see with um, the turmoil in the world, people start 
wondering about the return of Christ. If Jesus is going to return, is it the end of time? Is it the end of the world? And the idea of the end, that's what I want to talk about over the next few weeks, the end. What does it really look like? What does the Bible teach us? Because a lot of times, you know, preachers don't even want to talk about it. Sometimes I don't even want to talk about it because it stirs up this very erratic, fanatical, extreme, irrational emotion and thoughts and feelings. But God calls calls us to be firmly established, that no matter what happens in the scale of time, we are not to be shaken. We're not moved. We are the light of the world. We're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But when we get swept up and carried away with everything that goes on in the world, we're not established in our hearts. And so I want to talk about what does the Bible teach us about the end? What are some ways of looking at that? Now, there are very few subjects that have stirred up more arguments than what the end of time looks like. Can we all disagree? This is going to be, I have to lay some groundwork here before we dive too deep. We're going to um, just talk about some basic things. But we, we, we need to go back to what I just have been talking about in terms of relationship. Because when these apocalyptic conversations start happening, things can get tense. People can get weird. That's just a reality. It's part of that navigation. But we just got done studying Romans chapter 14, where, where, where the word calls us not to destroy our brothers for the sake of food. Where we don't welcome people in just to argue over our opinions. Romans 10 verse 1, or 14 verse 1, I'm sorry. Not to quarrel over opinions. So when we start talking about the culmination of time or the return of Christ, we have to realize, first of all, it hasn't happened yet. Fact number one, Jesus has not returned yet. And we'll cover some of the details of why uh, we believe that in a moment. He hasn't returned yet, therefore we cannot completely know. I can look in the past and know what happened. I can say really definitively something that's already happened. But I can't look into the future and say with absolute confidence, this is what's going to happen. It's speculation. And Jesus warns us about this. And so one of the things we have to agree about before we start talking about what does the Bible prophesy about the end of time, how are Christians to respond and carry themselves in an established way through that process. So we're going to look at that. Because we want to be firmly established, not swept away with every disputable matter. There's a lot of fear in the world. When we start thinking about the end, we have all these apocalyptic pictures. I mean, we got a whole generation that figures there's probably going to be a zombies at the end, right? I mean, we get these ideas worked into our minds about what the end looks like. But what did God tell us? What did he teach us about walking through it? What did he teach us about what will happen? But we all have to agree that we don't actually know. Can we just start there? If you have firmly believed without question something about the end, I'm going to mess with you a little bit. Because it has not happened yet. No one can say with absolute definity the way it's going to be. We approach this like a disputable matter. This isn't something we destroy the work of God over. This isn't something that can be totally known. There are, there are pictures and things that God gives us to help us walk through it. And 
Attitude is so important. Attitude is so important when we start talking about something that people don't agree about. Being right isn't always the most important thing. We can still get it right. We can get it right and still be wrong because of attitude. And we talk about this. One of the um, words we used a lot, particularly back when I was first growing up in the church and, and in my faith, it was the word life-giving. And you can, you can have two people who believe exactly the same things theologically, right down to a T. Everything is exactly the same. And you can have one who's bitter and angry and judgmental and accusational, but believes exactly the same thing as the other person who is gracious and life-giving and comforting and has mercy on people. Just having the facts right isn't what it's all about. What about your behavior? What about your attitude? What about the way you treat people? That's very, very important to God, and we have to take on that kind of thinking as we start to talk about something that can be very controversial. All right, are you with me? Yes, you okay with that? Yeah. Can, can we just laugh at ourselves a little bit? <laughs> not, not literally. Every, all right, I'm going to leave that alone. Because we are the light of the world, we're carrying a hope for all mankind. We ought to be able to ride the wind and the waves of life well. You know, I was thinking about this. We often talk about live like it's your last day. If today was your last day, how would you live? But then I thought, but I'm going to live forever. What if I live like I'm going to live forever? You know what that did for me? (sighs) I'm going to be all right. Even if we get hit by a meteor or something, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to go on and I'm going to live with God. And that caused me to be settled and steady and strengthened my faith and kind of made me look at my temporary circumstances from a little more objective point of view because I'm going to live forever. And someday today won't be that big of a deal. I thought, oh man, there's wisdom in that. And we have to think like that because the Bible talks like that. It talks about eternity, and there are moments, and there are challenges, and there are times, and there are seasons, and there's no reason for you and I ever to be afraid. There's no reason for angst and anxiety to ever have to take over our lives. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. We remain focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. So that's the attitude I'm going to come at this with. I don't have a lot of strong stances about these things. I don't think we should. Because the Jews did, and it bit them. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. It's important that we study. It's important that we look at things with curiosity and keep open to, God, what are you doing? And if it doesn't go come about the way we thought, we're going to look at some examples of that today. All right. I got it wrong. It's okay. It's okay. Jesus didn't come back in 1988. Okay, There was a book that came out. How many of you remember? We're going to talk about it. 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988, or the rapture will occur in 1988. You guys, it didn't happen. Oh, well, we get it wrong. It's okay. We can laugh at ourselves a little bit and go, okay. Maybe we shouldn't be predicting. All right, I'm going to get on with it. First thing I want to establish is that Jesus does return, and not in some sort of um, mysterious, 
spiritual way, uh, anything like that. There will be a physical return of Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is Jesus' promise. He's preparing to leave, but he's promising his disciples, I will return. And with the purpose of you being with me so we can be together. The time is coming that Jesus will return. No one knows when Jesus will return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready. Now, I want you to think about this. You're a disciple 2,000 years ago visiting with Jesus. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So these guys lived the rest of their lives with an expectation of Jesus' return. I'm sure as some of them got towards the end, they realized that they were going to die before he returned. I think Paul at some point indicates that's clear. Peter begins to indicate that he will be leaving his body behind. He realizes that, that Jesus is probably not coming back in his lifetime. Although, but Jesus puts this, this, this message in our hearts of be ready, be ready, because you don't know the hour. That word hour is a time that is unexpected. It doesn't mean some people have made the argument that, well, we don't know the hour, but we can know the day, or we can know the week, or we can know the month, but that's not the communication of this message. Hour is a period of time. No one knows the time frame in which Jesus is going to come. We can't pin it down exactly. And it's interesting how many people try. But the scripture is very clear that you won't know. It won't be quite expected. But concerning the day or the hour, this is Mark chapter 13, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven know, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. You don't know. We can't say. So what do we learn from this? That anyone claiming to know the time is automatically considered wrong. That's just, so you see this, this prophetic things on the internet and stuff like that. Jesus is coming next week. He's coming in September. He's coming on this Jewish festival. He's coming in 1988. He's going, listen, I, I just had some fun with this this week, studying all of the different predictions throughout history of Jesus' return. Popes did it. Um, Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, did it. The Jehovah's Witnesses did it a lot at the turn of the century. Finally, in, in about 1916, they said he did return, but not physically. He did it in a spiritual kind of way. You know, we see these, the guy that wrote this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 88, he was a rocket scientist for NASA. He was using physics and all this stuff. And, and he went so far as to say, he's quoted as saying, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Whoops. Only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Now, I hope he repented of that. He died in 2001. And, and you can't, there should be an eagerness, an expectancy, a curiosity. All that's healthy. But when we creep over into fanaticism and fall off a cliff with current ideals, we miss the point. We've got to keep ourselves founded in Christ and His truth because the world around us will drive you over that cliff. 
It'll stir up your fear as much as it can. Your anxiety, your concerns, your anger. I find it interesting that we read about certain things about how the world will end and then we try and stop them. You are not going to stop what God decreed to happen. You can't stop it. It is part of His plan. That isn't our mission. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to reach lives. One individual at a time. One life at a time. One salvation at a time. Bringing good news and light and hope. And some of this stuff, sometimes we end up doing the opposite. Because we don't understand or have a foundation in God's Word and what it teaches. So, I guess I'm not sure I quite made this clear, but from my point of view, as one of God's children, I want us all to have firm navigational skills in a chaotic world. We have to have that because it's not getting better. So we have to understand how we're to navigate things as they come along. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. John Wesley, a respected man, uh, founder of the Methodist movement, he had some predictions about it. He was off. Jerry Falwell, anyone heard of him? Been in the news lately. He's probably more famous now than his son is than, than ever. It was, I believe, in 1990. He said God will return within the next 10 years. When the year 2000 came around, and actually this is nothing new, in the year 1000, there were lots of predictions of the end. It's been a thousand years since Christ, and there's this whole millennium thing in Revelation. In the year 1000, it's going to end. In the year 500, it's going to end. It, it, you know, there's just there's hundreds of predictions of the end that have all been inaccurate. I think that give, in, in wisdom, we would step back and go, no one really knows. We need a good dose of humility along with the process of learning. And going, no one really can say for sure when the end will take place or what it will even look like. Jesus returns in person. Now, this is important to establish because, again, like I've just mentioned, there have been groups who have claimed that Jesus has returned in a very secretive or mystical or spiritual way. They were dealing with this right away in the first century of the church and have been dealing with it ever since. But it's important to ground ourselves in the Scripture that when Jesus returns, it will be quite physical. It will be in person. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, so Jesus is, whoop, there he goes. He's going up through the clouds. See you later. I'll be back, he said. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So everybody's standing on the ground, and they're just like, well, what now? There he goes. Suddenly two men appear appear there. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, did you just see what happened? I mean, I can tell you. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's interesting. Giving the idea that there will be this visible return of Christ. We know that in his resurrection, Christ had a body. He ate food with them. He wasn't just a ghost. He actually had a body. And Paul says that when we rise from the dead, our body will be like his. Yes! I'm getting to that phase in life where it's not quite so energetic as it used to be. Okay. 
For the Lord himself, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself, who? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Lots of interesting information here, but what I want to focus on today is that the Lord himself will descend. Christ returns. This is, the, this is one of the major hopes of the church. Something that we look forward to and anticipate and desire is the return of our Lord and Savior to the earth. It's something, it should be something that fuels our hope, not our fear. We don't need to be scared. We need to be anticipant. Have you seen the bumper sticker? It's my favorite. I laugh all the time. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Have you seen that? I laugh every time I see that because you know what I think of? I think of all those passages that say, watch, be alert, pay attention. And it, it just makes me laugh. Like, oh, he's on his way. Let's do something good for Jesus now. You kind of miss the point there if that's the case. But there is this idea that he's coming. Let's be working. Let's get after it. Let's pay attention to him. Let's pay attention to what he wants us to do in this life while we're here. Let's pay attention to the people that he wants to reach. And the gifts he wants to activate amongst us. We're a people of action. We don't just come to church and sit and watch on Sunday. We're out in the world being a light. Bringing a message of hope. Because Jesus is returning. And we anticipate it. We also see in these passages that it's going to be quite visible when he returns. Luke chapter 17. And he said to his disciples... The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And, they, and surely they would. The disciples spent their time with Jesus, and then he's gone for the rest of their lives. Surely they went through times where they desired to be with him again. And surely you and I, there should be a desire. He rescued us. We sang songs to him this morning about that amazing grace that he has for us. Oh, we desire for the day that we can see him face to face, that we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. There's this, yeah, we want Jesus in our lives. And, but you will not see it, he says to them. And they will say to you, look here or look here. Like, here he is right over here. I found him. He appeared here. He's, he's returned to this place. And we see this whole idea, this is the beginning of the idea of false Christs, false messiahs and saviors, or, or kind of mystical off ideas. Look here, look there, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. We kind of get this idea from reading these scriptures that when Jesus returns, there will be no question about it. Everyone's going to know. There will be no, no question. Am I stretching the scripture? That's what it says. And so then we take it in and we, and we, we understand, hey, we, we could be off on our interpretation. We could be off on our understanding. But that's what it says. And so do I need to get caught up in these little cult things that develop and new messiahs and all kinds of stuff like that? No. Jesus said, I'm coming back. Lightning. Yeah, that's it. That kind of a thing. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
It's part of our process is to eagerly await the coming of Christ. And he's not coming to die on the cross again. He's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming for his people. James chapter 5, we already read the last part of this, but I want to read the earlier passages to you. Be patient. Be patient. Can we just stop there for a second? Be patient. Not anxious. Patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So this, is, this idea, there is a bit of urgency, like it's at hand. It's always possible in the next moment. Jesus could return right now. It could happen. And some of my ideas would be shot. I was off. Some of the signs I thought that were supposed to be a certain way didn't happen the way I thought they were going to happen. Oh, well. I'm glad he's back. That needs to be our attitude. Because see, if we start digging in our heels and we have to be right, you can even get to the point of the Jews and say, you're not really the Jesus. You're one of those false ones. Because it didn't happen the way I thought it should happen. Hmm. Interesting. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, the process isn't over. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Another anticipatory scripture. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. There's a hope there. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is returning and there will be payment. Real actual, like he's going to write you a check? I don't think so. Maybe my theology's off, but I think there's a little more to it than that. This is Jesus speaking. I'm coming. I'm bringing reward with me. Wow. That's something to look forward to. To repay each one for what he has done. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. What we do matters. We don't, we don't earn our salvation, but what we do matters. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the second to last verse in the Bible. Behold. Oh, can we go to that next verse? He is... Well, we can read this one too. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, or mourn is another word. Even so, amen. All three of these passages out of Revelation bring this idea. Jesus is returning, and there's purpose. But really, what what catches your eye in here? All the tribes of the earth will mourn or wail. I wonder what it will be like, because I've had the advantage of studying this all week, and you haven't, I've got to picture this many times in my mind. I thought, what what am I going to do? I'm standing outside. It's a beautiful fall day. Whoa, here he comes. What will I feel? What would that be like? Will I be afraid? Probably a little. But man, I think in the world's going to, 
Yeah, it'll, it'll be tremendous, amazing thing, the return of Christ. But like John said in the previous verse, amen, come, Lord. It's okay. Yes, we are anticipating. I want more people to come to Christ. I want to see another generation of my grandchildren born. It's one of the things we talk about at home, especially when your kids are young. They're like, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I'm married and have kids. It's like, yeah, that's a real, a real thing. So we trust him with it. So Jesus is returning suddenly. I'm stealing this phrase from Grudem for all my systematic theologians out there. Jesus is returning suddenly, personally, visibly, and bodily. He's returning in body. And we don't know exactly when. We can't say for sure. So when, when, when the hype starts to concern us and drag us into certain directions on the issue, we need to ground ourselves in the Word of God. He will return, and we can be confident in that. I want to talk a bit for the last few minutes of my message today about the sobering reminder that the Jews give us. Because Jesus came, we're talking about the second coming, right? But there was a first. Jesus came a first time, and there were hundreds of predictions of his coming. Hundreds in the scripture. And the Jews thoroughly, thoroughly knew the scripture. Probably better than most of us. That was part of what they did. They studied the word of God. And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah that the scripture prophesied. How did that happen? Partially it's a mystery. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 10. When he says there's a mystery, there was a blinding. And it's to our benefit as Gentiles that they missed it. But when we look at the story of Jesus and the way he interacted and what actually happened, we take some lessons from that. Jesus was the Messiah. We believe that he was. And for all of the prophecy they had, they still misinterpreted it. And so you and I then get into the New Testament and all the prophecy about the second coming of Jesus, we would be wise to take notes about how rigid we're willing to be about something that hasn't happened yet. There's a wisdom in that. In Isaiah chapter 53, I'm not going to read the scripture to you, but it talks about uh, Jesus being the man of sorrows, that he's going to be abused, that he's going to be crucified and crushed. And we see that fulfilled, but it seems like they, they wanted to just focus on more like Isaiah chapter 9, which I will read to you now. For unto us a child is born. We know this. We're going to read it at Christmas probably. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Let's go to the next one. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. From that time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. They were all about this one. The Pharisees were. They were all about how this was going to happen, what it was going to look like. Their prediction is that a king would rise among them and overthrow Rome and would establish the Jews as the rulers of the world. That was their anticipation. That was their interpretation. Now, you and I can le read this passage through the eyes of Christ, what Christ did, and we can see how this is fulfilled and will be fulfilled, but not in the way that it was interpreted in the first place by the Jews. So when Jesus came, they missed it. They questioned him about it. 
We see James and John in Matthew chapter 20. Their mom comes to Jesus and says, uh, would you have my son sit on your right and left in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You do not know what you are asking. Are they going to be able to drink the cup that I drank? They weren't anticipating what was going to happen. They were anticipating maybe a rebellion, an actual rebellion and an actual overthrow of Rome. They weren't expecting him to get crucified. It wasn't the prophecies. My point is the prophecies were not properly interpreted. And when the time came that they needed to change their mind, they didn't. And that is my concern for us today. That just because things don't happen in the way you absolutely think they should doesn't mean that they aren't God. So we have to be cautious and we have to be rooted in the Word and grounded in order to navigate interesting topics like this. So the Jews believed that the Messiah, that the prophet which Moses spoke about, would come and deliver them from Roman bondage and set up a kingdom where they would be the rulers. Most Jews today, I, this is, I got this off gotquestions.org, which is a great resource that I like to use. Most Jews today perceive the last 2,000 years of historical Jewish persecution to be at the hands of so-called Christians. From the Crusades to the Inquisition, to the programs in Europe, to Hitler's Holocaust, Jews ultimately believe that they are being held responsible for the death of Jesus Christ and are being persecuted for that reason. They therefore reject him today. Even today. It's a very interesting study there. But there was one amongst them, Nicodemus. Let's talk about Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, appears in the Gospel of John three times. In chapter 3, in chapter 7, and chapter 19. And in chapter 3 is the famous passage of Scripture. So let's remind ourselves, who is Nicodemus? He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. That's the political party he's a part of. A quasi-political theological party. The other being the Sadducees who were much more Greek in their thinking and much more liberal than the Pharisees were. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he's asking him questions. And this is where we get the famous passage, John 3.16, where Jesus says to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is Nicodemus, one of these guys. He's, he's, his heart's open somehow. He's questioning No one could do what you do if you weren't from God. And so he starts asking Jesus, and Jesus is talking to him. But Nicodemus shows up a couple more times. Now, we sometimes get critical of Nicodemus because we're like, he snuck to Jesus in the night to ask him questions. And then we don't hear a lot about him after that. Maybe he never believed. We know the Pharisees gave Jesus a bad time. Was Nicodemus a bad guy? I mean, I don't know really what went on in his heart completely or anything like that. The scripture's not real clear. But we have some indicators. But Nicodemus was open to Jesus. He wasn't so stuck in his ways that he wasn't willing to ask the question. And so the Pharisees, are the the rulers have got together and they're plotting against Jesus. And they're talking about, you know, they're arguing about whether or not the Messiah could come from Galilee. They're looking at the prophecies, going, he can't be Jesus because everybody knows the prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Right? And Nicodemus goes, isn't it in our law to examine a man before we accuse him, basically is what he says. And the Pharisees, I can't tell if they're making fun of him here or if he actually was from Galilee. But they're like, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they're arguing about the prophecies about the Messiah. And Nicodemus is kind of going, now wait a minute. Here's my encouragement to you. Be like Nicodemus. 
Go back to the scripture and examine. Don't get so stuck in your way. When something hasn't happened yet, you can't say for sure. You can't say for certain. The Jews warned us. Well, in chapter 7, he stands up for Jesus. In chapter 19, there are two guys that take the body of Jesus and put him in Joseph's tomb. One of them was Nicodemus, a Pharisee. They weren't all evil, but they were powerful. And they, they had lots of political power, and they didn't want to give it up for this. Kind of put on the rose-colored glasses about their own situation. Hmm. Would you stand, please? Isn't this going to be fun? Here we go. Diving into all the end time stuff. This will be great. Hopefully we don't have a church split before it's over. <laughs> These are disputable matters. But we know that Jesus returns. And the scripture gives us lots of insight into that. Seems that it will be quite visible. Seems that it will be powerful. Seems that he's returning in body. Seems that the dead in Christ will rise first. Huh, that was interesting, huh? So we're just going to explore with curiosity and open hearts and minds. God, what does your scripture teach us? But really the more important thing in my mind is that we as his people remain settled and grounded and constant, exhibiting the character and nature of God no matter what happens in the world around us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have been so gracious. There was one point in your word when you were talking to your disciples about this stuff and you said, see, I have told you ahead of time. <laughs> you, you, you bring a security to us. You give us a hope. You establish firmly in our hearts that we could navigate this life and its ups and downs, its challenges, its weirdness. We're all weird sometimes. God, we thank, we're thankful that you can help us remain steady and focused on you, that no matter what happens, we have a hope. And we anticipate the day of your return. Give us wisdom and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.